<clears throat> Last week, we returned to our summer series in Isaiah. We did the first 39 chapters of Isaiah a couple of years ago, and then last summer we went back and we did uh, chapters 40 through 53, and this summer we are going to conclude the book with chapters 54 through 66. And we're going to be making our way each week through about one chapter of this incredible prophecy. Isaiah is prophesying to a nation who has consistently fallen short, and they have consistently flirted with or committed adultery with false gods while claiming the identity of God's people. And they have failed to keep the covenant, and therefore they are nearing the time when they are going to experience the covenant curses. But it is to this unfaithful people that Isaiah was sent by God to declare good news. And Isaiah, more than any other prophet, declared to the people that there is hope, and that hope comes to them in the person of the Messiah who was to come. He promised that there was good news. Isaiah is all about the gospel, and Isaiah is all about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Last week, we set our focus on chapter 54, and there we saw three metaphors of radical reversal from a place of emptiness and brokenness and lostness to a people overflowing with the blessings of creation and the beautification of the Lord. And we learned that, there, that we are to have joy because we have been given an undeserved gift that will result in our tent, the people of God, the church being spread across the earth. And now, in our passage today, we are seeing what message it is that we are to proclaim. Remember, last week we talked about that message that we are to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. But as we go forth, as that tent is being enlarged, what is the message that we are to proclaim? Here we find that invitation of grace being extended to Judah and also to us and also as we express it to those who are outside of the church even to this day. We see how these everlasting truths are just as relevant and just as applicable as the first day that the Lord impressed them upon the mind and the mouth of this great prophet Isaiah. So hear the word of the Lord, and as I read to you this chapter, I want you to know and remember that this prophecy bears with it the weight of authority as if Jesus himself were present in this room and he were speaking to you and proclaiming these words to you right now. This that I am about to read is God's word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God. And of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him 
and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, what good words, what good news. What a good message we are to proclaim. Lord, we thank you that you have proclaimed it to us. That you have called us to come to you. You have called us so that you might give freely to us. Today we ask that for everyone in this room who knows you, that we would be alive. That our souls would be afire with the good news that we are reading. This message of truth that has come from your lips. And God, I pray that it would help us to understand how to share this message with others. I ask God that you would help us to be fearless and urgent about sharing the gospel with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with those in our community who otherwise will experience the judgment. Please, Lord, help us to be faithful in carrying this message to a world that needs it so desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Bible, God will often use imagery intentionally designed to shift your understanding of who he is and what he has promised to do. And in today's text, the Lord chooses to deliver his message using an economic metaphor. Now, everybody's thinking about economics these days, whether you have a thorough understanding of economics or you just know the word inflation, or if you just fill up your car at the pump, you know the idea that money has some kind of value. And God uses that kind of illustration because he is aware that it is something everyone has to think about. Everyone who has to handle their own finances in any way would be able to grasp the simple but powerful word pictures that God is painting for us here in Isaiah 55. So in order to frame our time together, we are going to look at the following five elements of God's economy here in this chapter. Point number one, the free market. Point number two, demand. Point number three, supply. Point number four, guaranteed returns. And point number five, futures. Let's first start with the free market. One of the things that was killed by COVID, along with many others, was the long-held and storied tradition of the American staple, the free sample. Now, I remember being in high school and going to the mall in Kansas City, and many times I would do this where I would kind of float back and forth through the food court like an apparition, and I would pick up countless toothpick-sized portions of samples until I had experienced an entire meal worth of food without ever paying a penny. Now, 
Imagine my surprise when a couple of years later I was in a macroeconomics course and my professor gave us our first assignment in which he said, write me a one-pager on what it means that there is no such thing as a free lunch. It just completely obliterated my meal plan. Now, I don't think that I had ever actually considered the simple fact that somewhere, someone had to pay for all of that Kung Pao chicken that I was eating. But, but listen... Hear the invitation that God makes to us in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Have you ever been advertised to, maybe on a hot day you're in the park and somebody walks by with, with one of these and it's like, six bucks, right? And he says, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come by wine and milk, without money, and without price. Now, if you're like me, you probably received many free offers in the mail just this week. But there's always a catch. After that 30-day free trial, they know you are going to forget to cancel it, and then you're going to end up spending four months' worth of subscription costs before you finally catch it on your credit card bill and cancel And they know that they can give out free samples at the mall because eventually somebody's going to pay an overpriced amount for a full tray of food. God is promising an actual free lunch. And he is the only one that is capable of truly giving freely because he is the only one who actually owns everything. He created everything and he can replace anything. His storehouses could never be depleted, even if he were to give infinitely to all people forever. Come, everyone who thirsts, come and buy without money, without price. I will give to you freely. And God highlights the fact that people were willing to spend much for that which provides nothing in return. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Let's just imagine for a moment that I said to you, hey, I'd like to take you out for lunch after church today. And imagine that I started talking up this experience, this restaurant that I want to take you to, this expensive location where I am going to buy you this excellent meal and I tell you all of the the ways that the food looks and the way that the restaurant is decorated and I'm trying to talk this up to you and then I say, this is going to be the best meal you ever had. The problem is, it's not like anything you've ever had. You see, it's not actually real food. It's, it's kind of like those plastic toys they give toddlers to play with. It looks great, just like the commercials, but it just happens to be made out of plastic. And if you choose to actually eat it, you're going to finish your meal and you're going to feel just as hungry as if you hadn't eaten anything. If I gave you that option, you'd probably choose someone else to go with for lunch. Notice a couple of things here. First, consider the food items that are mentioned. Consider what he says to you. He says, come and get water, milk, wine, and bread. Now, going in reverse order, consider Jesus. Jesus freely took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he turned it into enough to feed roughly 20,000 people, freely giving to those people. He turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana, freely giving wine to them. He promises to freely give us pure milk of the word to grow us into salvation, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. And finally, we're going to take a little extra time as we consider, he says, come and get water for free. 
Now earlier, Mike read to us from John chapter 4, and there we heard the story of this woman who was going to the well for water. She was traveling there, it shows us, in the heat of the day. This was not the typical time for, for people to get water, but it becomes evident why she was doing this. She was there in the middle of the day because she had become a pariah to society. She had been with all of these different husbands and had been divorced over and over and over and over again. And now she's just living with some guy and they're not even married. And in those days, that was an extreme cultural faux pas. And so, look, if you go through a divorce, that's a very difficult and challenging thing. I don't want to minimize that. And there are occasions, most likely when people go through divorce, it's both people's fault. But there are occasions when somebody will go through a divorce and it's only on one side that there's an issue. Well, if you're divorced this many times, you're probably the problem. And this woman was the problem. She was a mess of a woman. She was living a life filled with sin. And now she comes to the well in the middle of the day and she took her jar there and went alone at a time when no other people would be there when none of the other women of the village would be filling up, there would be no gossip, there would be no whispers. She could go in an isolated way, fill her jar, and go home. And there she finds Jesus, who tells her of water that will satisfy. And he said, everyone who drinks of this water, this well that you're getting ready to pull water from, everyone who drinks here, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Why was this woman at the well? Obviously, she was there because she needed water. People, this is a secret I'm going to tell you, people need water to live. Now, this is hard for us to understand because of how easy modern technology has made this for us, but imagine those days. If you did not go to the well for water, there was... Nothing you could do about washing your hands or washing your clothes or washing your dishes. But most importantly, you could not survive because you're living in one of the hottest regions in the world where all of the liquid inside of your body is being pulled constantly from you. There is no indoor air conditioning. In fact, as hot as it is outside, if you walk indoors, you might be in the shade, but it's still the same temperature. And all day and all night, you are sweating out this precious resource. And you must have water every day in order to live. Water is vital. And this woman heard the promise that Jesus is giving and says, look, you'll never need to come here again. You'll never be thirsty again. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come down here and draw water. As Mike read earlier, the Lord points out her sin to her And he has this brilliant conversation with her about the nature of the promised Messiah. And at the end of that conversation, he realizes that he is the one that she has heard about. And now listen to what happens directly after that discussion that Mike read earlier. John chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Why did the woman go to the well? She went to get water. And then what happens? She leaves her water jar. By leaving that behind, it shows that she found something better. She found something more life-giving, something more satisfying. 
Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the water. It's free. Verse 2 reveals to us that we have often attempted to spend all that we have, and we do so on counterfeits, things that do not provide and things that do not satisfy. We have spent endless effort and endless money on that which is not bread and does not satisfy our souls. This is not a foreign concept to you. Just think back to before you were in Christ. Do you remember all the things that you looked to for satisfaction? Maybe it was affirmation of other people. Maybe it was money. Maybe it was beauty or relationships or hobbies or recognition. Maybe it was just a bunch of stuff. You know, there's that study that uh, I've mentioned many times where they say that the highest enjoyment you have of a product is the moment you're opening the box And from there, everything goes way downhill. And they studied this, and that is why Apple products produces such fancy boxes, because they know that's going to be your most memorable moment with that device. So they want you to enjoy it for those 30 seconds, because after that, it's all downhill from there. Consider that these promises, these promises of happiness and fulfillment, they only leave you as empty as that dinner of the restaurant that serves plastic food. Here we see that there is a promise of the free market. The free market where you can come and receive a gift from God at no expense to yourself. And do you know why that's so important? Because you have nothing to offer him that he would ever want. There's nothing that you could pay for uh, with any valuable currency that you have. There is no bargaining chip that you have with God. The only option for you to get what he is giving is if he gives it to you for free. And the good news is that he does. Point number two, demand. Now by this, I don't mean what we usually speak of as demand. I actually mean that God makes a demand of you. Now this is really important because so often when we go out and share the gospel or when people proclaim the good news from a pulpit or when you're speaking to your children or you're talking to your neighbor, so often when we share the gospel in the modern Christian life, we do so as an invitation like we are supposed to, like verses 1 and 2. Come, it's free. Praise God. And then we stop there. But notice that if we stop there, we fail to present that God not only invites, but he demands. Consider the commanding way he calls us to himself, starting in verse 3. Listen to me diligently, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, here that your soul may live. These are not recommendations or suggestions. These are presented in the emphatic command. You must do these things. Come to me. Now notice that God's commands are not burdensome. What is he demanding that you do? He demands that you actually delight in what is good. As we saw earlier, the water that actually satisfies is what he's calling you to. It's not a demand to consume some created thing. The command is to enjoy God himself. The command of the Lord is to come and delight yourself in him, the one who created you and built you and sustains you. This is not a foreign concept in the Bible. It is all over the Bible. Psalm 37 verse 4 says it this way, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's two parts to that sentence, a command and a promise. Delight yourself in the Lord. Command, do this thing. 
Make him the pleasure of your heart. And he will give you the desire of your heart. If he is what you are pursuing, if he is what you are running after, if he is the one that gives you that inward joy and peace and smile, then he will give you the desires of your heart. When we present the gospel, it should include the fact that God demands that we come and that he demands that we take delight in him. This is not just some sales pitch. It is literally a matter of eternal life and death. That is why he says, incline your ear to me and come to me here that your soul may live. The implied alternative is, if you do not come to me, your soul will die. For the soul that sins will surely die. Now don't get me wrong, we must never be pushy, we must not be forceful. There is nothing that you could do to move somebody's heart one centimeter closer to the kingdom either through physical violence or manipulation or anger or coercion or any other tactic that you might pursue in order to try to, like a football player, nudge somebody into the end zone. You cannot do that. But I demand, I do not mean that you make demands of anyone. You are simply to reveal that God has already made demands of us. Come. He has demanded that we come to him for life. Point number three, supply. Now, at the end of verse 3 and verse 4, it reads, And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. There's no doubt that we have need of eternal life. Any honest person who examines their life is going to find a mountain of evidence indicating a failure to honor God. Exhibit A, David. Now, God made multiple covenants in the Old Testament. Why does he select David out of all of them? Well, I think here's why. Because he was a failure. If anybody messed up, it was David. He was a cheater. He was a womanizer. He was a terrible friend. His adultery was more sordid than any soap opera plot. His murder of his good friend was more of a vile betrayal than that of Benedict Arnold. His cover-up was a bigger scandal than Watergate. Yet, God says, I love him with an eternal covenant love. God made him a witness and a leader of God's love. You and I are similarly in a desperate situation, in need of immense grace. We cannot perform our way into the favor of God. But how is God going to do this? How is he going to bring us into covenant? How does he take such great sinners and beautify us and perfect us? How does he bring us into those covenant promises? He does so through the coming Messiah and his ministry. Notice verse 5 briefly shifts the attention away from the people of Judah and shifts it to the coming king of promise. Now, I will say this happens often in this section of Isaiah's message. Last summer, we spent so much time talking about the suffering servant, and this suffering servant is now going to be referenced many times. He is the one who is going to come and redeem God's people. Listen to how God speaks of him in verse 5. Behold, you, who is he speaking to here? The suffering servant, Jesus. 
Behold, you, Jesus, shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that does not know, did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now, this is not to say that Jesus does not mentally know something or someone. When it says that he does not know them, remember that know is a word of affection, a word of intimacy, a word of involvement. In other words, there are people with whom you have covenanted, Israel, and there are people with whom you have not covenanted, just like God the Father says, you alone, O Israel, have I known among all the nations. Well, he also speaks about the Canaanites in the same chapter. So he clearly knows about them, but he has set his affection only on the one group. And now he says, there is a group of people that you have not set your affection upon that are now going to receive that affection. And there are people that did not know you, they did not even know about you, and they are going to run to you because of what God is going to do to you. This is another way of speaking about the expansion of God's tent that we saw yesterday, or last week in Isaiah chapter 54. We see how the nation of Israel is going to have its fulfillment in the church and how the church is going to expand to the outermost parts of the earth. But the chief thing that I want you to notice here in this verse is what it is that will cause people to run to him. Look to those last five words of verse 5 again. For he has glorified you. It is the glory of Jesus Christ that is going to draw people into the kingdom. Consider a few ways that Jesus picks up this very same thread in John's gospel. In the garden, when Jesus was praying the night that he was betrayed, he asked this of the Lord in John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That process of being glorified required that he would first go to the cross. This is the same prayer in which Jesus asks, not my will, but yours be done. Now Jesus knew that it was only by being lifted up that he would draw all men unto himself. A chapter earlier, he explained this very thing to his disciples in John 16, 12 through 15. Here he is expressing to them that the, the uh, Holy Spirit is going to come and minister to them after his departure. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but, ever, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. What will he do? He will, verse 14, he will glorify me. Now notice, there's a very important word here, the word for. That is a grounding statement. He will glorify me for, this is what he will do, he will take that which is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Not only does Jesus provide a free market where you're invited to freely receive the gift of salvation, not only does he demand that you come to him for your sake and for your good, he also provides this salvation with a supply that is as infinite as the glory of Christ. What is it that supplies our salvation? Well, Isaiah doesn't give us the details 
here in Isaiah 55, but as the mystery of the gospel unfolds and is unveiled in the New Testament, we see that our salvation can be free to us only because it was greatly costly to him. He can give forgiveness of sins because he paid for them himself. At the cross, Jesus eliminated the penalty of the sin debt that we owe so that we could be saved. He shouldered the burden of guilt for all people who would ever be saved. He carried that shame and suffering so that we could experience freedom. Verses 6 through 7 continues, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now so far, this sounds very similar to the demand for repentance that we've already seen previously. But notice the promise at the end. There is a guarantee of compassion and pardon. True repentance is never going to be met with a cold shoulder. Not only will he pardon, but it says he will pardon abundantly. This is good news. Brothers and sisters, this is a good message that we have to share. This is a good message that you have heard and believed. This is good news for sinners like you and me who have sinned abundantly. The food of his mercy is deep enough to submerge every last evil thought and action that you have ever produced. Which brings us now to the most famous words of this chapter. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, in order for us to grasp what is going on in these verses, in order for us to understand rightly the meaning, you need to notice two very foundational, fundamental, but easily overlooked things. First, notice the shift in communication that is taking place here. In the previous verse, Isaiah is functioning as a middleman, communicating on God's behalf. Let me read that verse again. And as I do, imagine that you are in a room. And in that room, there is God, and there is Isaiah, and there is you. Now imagine and listen how these words are coming to you from Isaiah. Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return to, and he points over, to the Lord. Return to him, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And Isaiah is speaking and pointing to God. And now look at the very next words. God stops communicating for a moment through Isaiah. And he now looks you directly in the eyes. And he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. This explanation that God is giving, this distinction he is making, is designed to be personal. It is designed to reveal the great distinction between who you are and who God is by nature. Your ontical reason to make. This statement has been used in so many contexts, but rarely the one that is meant here. For example, it's sometimes used to speak about the wisdom of God. Well, his ways are wiser than your ways. That's what somebody means when they reference this verse. And that is true. 
but it's not actually what's being said here. And sometimes it's referenced in a way to speak about how God is bigger than us or transcendent over us. Look, you're, you're just small and you only think of small things, but think about it. God has to consider everything in the universe all the time. Your ways are not like his. His are, his are bigger than yours. Well, that's also true, but that's not what's being said here. And most often, I have heard this verse used in reference to seemingly unanswered prayers or in reference to difficult circumstances that cause people to ask the question, why would God do something like this to me? And someone will respond, well, because God's ways are higher than your ways and his thoughts than your thoughts. And that is true. But that's not what this verse is actually saying. They're, in other words, they are saying, look, God has a plan for you. You're just not smart enough to put the pieces together the right way right now. Again, true, but not what's being said here. How do we know what God is speaking about here? Once again, that little grounding word, that word that links these thoughts together, the word for. For. He pardons abundantly for or because his ways are not your ways. In other words, God is calling to light, to light the fact that, look, if you were in his place, you would not be so gracious. You would not show mercy to your enemies like this. You would not have a heart of bottomless compassion like he does. If you or I were the ones ruling over all the universe, we would not have spared the people in the flood. We would not have spared the Israelites in the wilderness when God delivers them from Egypt in captivity. And what do they do? They go and they take the gold that God gave them out of the earrings of the Egyptian, Egyptian people that had just enslaved them. They melt them down. They turn them into a half-shapen calf. And they attribute their rescue from Egypt to a misshapen ball of metal. If that was you or me, we would have killed them all. If you or I were God, we certainly not, would not have let the Jews or the Romans execute God's son at the cross. We would have wiped out the planet. He highlights the extent of the difference in scale between our hearts of compassion and his. He says to this pre-industrial people, look up, see as high as you can, look to the heavens, look to the sky. As far as the heavens transcend the ground upon which you walk, so my heart of mercy and compassion soars above yours. This metaphor is not changed by modern scientific discoveries. Even as telescopes search the distant edges of the known universe, we can still say with perfect accuracy, as far as those distant galaxies are from us, there is an even greater distance between the forgiveness that God provides and what my heart naturally chooses to give to those who sin against me. He's saying, you should be thankful that I am not like you. The supply of God's loving compassion is not limited. This is why Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 can confidently declare, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, to God through him. It's all about the supply. Endless, bottomless, free love, mercy, and forgiveness that comes to us through Jesus Christ who has infinite source to give. Point number four, guaranteed returns. Now, there's no such thing as an earthly investment that is void of risks. I knew a man who invested everything he had in a particular fund because he was seeing such gains in it, in interest that he was receiving year over year, he thought it was foolproof. I felt so bad for this man. He actually took out all of the equity on his house and invested every penny of it in this stock. He took out bank loans 
and family loans. And he put all of it into this fund knowing that he was receiving between 20 and 25% annually. Well, then on December 11th, 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested for fraud and it was revealed that all of the money he thought he was promised had gone up in smoke. And he was not the only one. $64.8 billion were invested that was never returned. There is no such thing as guaranteed returns, not in this world. But there is a promise. There is guaranteed return in God's economy. Remember, this chapter is teaching us about the mechanics of presenting the gospel to others. It is a masterclass in evangelistic theory. And at the very center of any genuine gospel call, we should not be surprised to find God working through His Word. Why is it that we do the Bible reading plan? Because God works in your life through His Word. Why are we memorizing this summer all of these verses? Because God works in your life through the Word. Why is it that when we present the gospel, we are to do so using the Scripture? Because God works in the heart through His Word. It is living and active. For as the rain comes down and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that go out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Notice all of those times he is using the word it. It shall not return. It shall accomplish. It shall do that for which it was sent. What is he speaking about? He is speaking about his word. How are you to present the good news? Using the word of God. Why? Because it always accomplishes its purpose. What is God's purpose in the word of God? Well, sometimes God uses it to soften the heart of sinners. He does that sometimes slowly over time. There are some people who will hear a verse and it will eat away at their conscience. It will eat away at them for a decade before finally God uses it to open their eyes to salvation. But he uses the word. Sometimes God uses it to harden the heart of people. As hard as the heart of Pharaoh. They hear it and they turn away and they reject it. It is the scent of death to them. Sometimes God uses his word in almost an explosive way immediately shaking somebody to the core of their being and bringing them to salvation. They hear it, their jaw drops, and they cannot deny it, and they instantly hear with ears to hear, and the Spirit draws them to salvation. The promise is not that every time the word goes forth, it will produce your desired outcome. It does not promise that every time it comes forth, it will produce immediately a saved soul. But the promise is that when you use God's word, it will always produce the purposes for which it was given. It will always stand. God will not fail. And that is another good reason for you to join in with this memorization challenge we are doing this summer as we equip ourselves with the unfailing word of God. This promise should also undercut any fear that you have of messing up while evangelizing. I have mentioned this many times. I will repeat it many times because we forget it many times and because we become fearful so often. You're never going to be the perfect messenger. There are always going to be times when you are trying to share the gospel and you say things poorly or your tongue gets tied or we get something wrong or we don't know how to answer somebody's question. But when your explanation of the gospel is rooted in God's word, the promise is that God will use it. 
His word will not return void. Why do I have confidence in preaching to you today? I have confidence not because I am persuasive, because I'm not. Not because I'm funny, because I'm not. Not because I have the ability to transform your life. I am not that kind of a speaker. If you want to hear somebody who's going to teach you to make your bed, you can go talk to some fancy-smancy, expensive guy who's going to come and explain to you how to make your life better in 10 easy steps. I'm not that guy. What do I have to tell you? Nothing. I don't even think you should imitate my lifestyle. You're going to end up walking through the food court and eating cheap or free food. I'm not giving you anything of me. All I can do here and present to you is something powerful, something that is transformative, something that will radically alter your life, not only here but in eternity, and I can do that knowing that what I am saying is going to have great effect for you, not because I can affect you, but because God's word will affect you. It is a guaranteed return. There's nothing that will ever hinder that. And so those who preach the word are called to preach the word, not preach themselves. Paul says, we preach not ourselves. It should undercut any fear that you have of preaching because the, guaranteed is always, the return is always guaranteed. That neighbor that you're afraid to talk to because you still have to live next to them, you can give them the word of God. When you have conversations, tell them what you've been memorizing. Talk to them about what you're hearing on Sunday mornings. Use the word of God in conversations. That word of God will have guaranteed returns. Our final point today, point number five, is futures. Now, I've known a lot of people who do stock markety type stuff. I don't understand it. And I've asked them to explain futures to me, and I still don't understand it. Now, I realize some people make big money on that kind of thing, but to be honest, I struggle to see the difference between futures and gambling. And I'm sure there is a difference, but I can't see the difference because I can't see the future. And I don't know how much wheat is going to be produced Therefore, if I was involved in financial investing, which I'm not, but if I was, I would avoid futures at all costs because nobody knows the future. And you don't know when your ships are going to come in or when they're going to get swept to the bottom of the ocean by a rogue wave or a hurricane. Futures is risky business, but there is a future that we can be confident about. There is a future that we can be optimistic about. There is a future in which we can invest all that we have, and it will never disappoint us. Here at the end of this chapter, Isaiah begins to let the eternal promises of heaven peek through. We're going to see as we make our way through Isaiah's prophecy here at the end of the book, glimpses of heaven are going to become more and more and more prevalent. But for now, consider this picture of eternal peace that is being promised for those who are in Christ, those who receive this water freely. Verses 12 through 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. If you rewind back to the Garden of Eden, you will remember that part of Adam's curse was that the ground would begin to grow thorns and thistles. The very nature that was created for Adam's pleasure and for his protection as a home for him, that very nature was now going to turn against him and would become something that would produce pain and danger for him. Now, if you want to get a glimpse into that world, just try taking six small children into the woods on a hike. 
poison ivy and ticks and splinters and mud holes. They're everywhere. And that's in a well-treated patch of forest like the Massapequa Preserve. (laughs) But God says that our promises for the future, that we're going to move forward into that with joy, being led not in danger but in peace. I don't know if you've ever had to walk up a mountain. If you did, you probably said, hey, I'm going to go hiking and so, like, you, you begin to prepare yourself mentally for the idea that there's a mountain, that that is why you are there. In this time, nobody decided, hey, you know what I'm going to do today for fun? I'm going to go climb a mountain. They said, hey, I need to go visit my aunt or uncle, and they live on the other side of that mountain. So, unfortunately, that is the dilemma between me and my destination. And so now my job is to, unfortunately, walk up this thing. And as you're reaching the base here of the mountain, you begin looking up and you just see this massive thing in your way. And it's ominous. It is the opposite of welcoming. And here he says, look, the mountains are not going to be ominous anymore. They're going to greet you. They're welcoming you. They're bringing you in with pleasure. They're they're actually pleased that you are here and you will be pleased to be greeted by them with songs. And the trees... Like, I don't know if you remember all the old fairy tales, but like if you read through Grimm's fairy tales, people used to be terrified of the forest. And he says, look, you're going to walk into the forest and the trees, they're not going to be threatening you. They're going to be clapping their hands at joy to receive you. They're happy about your arrival and you're going to be happy to receive, be received by them. And when Isaac Watts wrote that famous hymn about the second coming of Christ that we usually sing at Christmas time, that song, Joy to the World, he included the line, No more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. No, 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 no. Isaiah is pointing us to the new heavens and the new earth, just like Isaac Watts was. He's pointing us to the fact that when Jesus returns, all things will be made new. So instead of thorns, what's going to happen? Well, look, Adam messed everything up, so where there was a cypress tree, thorns started to grow. And where there was a myrtle tree, briars started to grow. Well, guess what? When Jesus returns, where there were thorns, now there's going to be a cypress tree growing. And where there were briars, there's going to be be life, there's going to be myrtle trees, things that are beneficial to you and helpful and pleasing to you. And as we proclaim the good news, we should include the promise that there is something joyful on the other side. We are not promising people a good life here and now. If you become a Christian in our culture, people are going to hate you. They're going to think little of you. They're going to think that you are antiquated, that your beliefs are, maybe even if you hold to Christian ethics, they're going to think that you are bigoted. Not because you are, but because they have moved so far from a Christian framework that anything that falls outside of their modern perspectives is considered limited and hateful to them. We're not calling people to a comfortable life, but we are calling them to a perfect future. We are calling them to a future that is absolutely uh, undefiled by all of the things that we have experienced here in the world. So here we have a promise that we can give people. Look. As we share the gospel, it is good to tell them. By coming to Christ, you do avoid eternal judgment. And by coming to Christ, you do receive eternal blessing in heaven. But don't forget to tell them about the main reason why heaven is heaven. Because Jesus is there. 
It is good to tell them about all of the blessings that are available to them, but don't focus on the streets of gold. Don't focus on these myrtle trees. I don't even know if I know what that is. All of those things are just window dressing compared to the true and most valuable gift of heaven, Jesus himself. So let me close out my time with the words of Jesus himself from the last chapter of the last book of the Bible where he himself calls back to this chapter. He reaches back and grabs Isaiah 55 and he says, I have a good, good message for you. I have an invitation for you. Jesus says, Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we are so thankful for this good invitation that was given to us. Every saved person in this room is in the kingdom because somebody gave them your word. Somebody gave them truth, and it did not return void. It produced the purpose for which you sent it. Every person in this room who is saved has been invited to be a recipient of free grace, and God, you have given it. So God, I pray that now you would help us to be those who share this message, that would proclaim this message, that would declare this message, that would not shrink back from giving others this message, that we would bring that invitation of free water to all who are thirsty. God, I pray that as we move in our lives this week, we would do so fearlessly, able to proclaim the good news, knowing that your word will not fail and that your purposes will succeed. Help us to be faithful messengers. We thank you, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the jewel of heaven, the one who saved. We thank you for his sacrifice at the cross and that he redeemed us. We pray, God, that we would be so grateful that this water that came free to us came at great price to him, and that we would see, have great joy in our hearts as we see him rightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.